Dear friends, let's look to Luke chapter 9 and verses 37 through 45 this morning. Luke 9 and verses 37 through 45. Let's read. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is only a child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out, it convulses him, so that he foams in the mouth and shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. We have this mountaintop experience that the disciples had just experienced. Some of them, small group, three of them were there at the transfiguration. And they saw the glory of God displayed through Jesus Christ. So much so that they said, hey, let's set up some tabernacles here. Let's set up a worship service right here. The, the other Jews are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. We can have our own Feast of Tabernacles right here on the mountaintop. And Luke gave a little editorial comment there and said, Peter didn't know what he was saying. He didn't know what he was saying in, in many ways. He didn't know what he was saying in that first it looked as though he was equating Moses, Elijah, and Jesus at that time and setting them all up in tabernacles. He also didn't know what he was saying in that Jesus was about to be handed over to men. Jesus was on his pathway to the cross at this time. This mountaintop experience that they went through at that time that high that they experienced, that joy that they had at that time, that victory that they looked at there at that time was going to dissipate as Jesus went forward to the cross. It would be Peter that so boldly would speak what he believed, so boldly would share his opinion. It is always Peter, is it not? That is so, so quick to speak. It is Peter who will deny Jesus three times. Peter is not ready for what will happen. There is the reality in the Christian life of that mountaintop experience. You you have been there. Some of you have been to a camp. Some of you perhaps have been to a youth camp of of some type, and perhaps there was an irrational exuberance, or perhaps during that time there was a a legitimate response to the Word of God. And there was a separation from your normal life and your normal world during that time, and then you come back, well, you come back to the real world. You come back to walking and existing in the normal 
life and what must sustain you during those times of life as you go from that mountaintop experience to that time in a valley is not a, a, rem- a remembrance of that feeling that you had at that time. It is solely upon the Word of God. It must be the Word of God that grounds us. It must be the Word of God that we are trusting in. It is the Word of God that will sustain the disciples as they are persecuted in so many incredible ways. It is the Word of God that will sustain even someone like the Apostle Paul as he is sitting in prison, as he is trusting in the Lord in writing and instructing to the churches, as he has, has anxiety for churches even at times, as he is concerned for them even as he is suffering. He, he has not enough food. There's times where he doesn't, he is cold, he is alone, he is not well cared for, but his hope is in the Lord. It must be the word of the Lord that sustains us during these times. But you have this, this mountaintop experience here at this time, and we see this culminating here in verse 43 of Luke 9. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. This is what they are seeing, they're seeing the kingdom of God coming forward at this time. They're seeing their, 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 their power growing at this time. They're, they are looking forward to this ruling Messiah. This is their hope at this time. What they are looking forward to is Jesus coming forward and taking a hold of the reins of this culture and taking hold of the reins of the the Roman culture even, removing the Romans from their authority over them, removing the sinful authority even of of Sadducees and Pharisees, and coming forward and ruling and reigning in the political structure of the people in this day. They're even, we will see, pining for their own position. Perhaps one of us can sit at your right and sit at your left. They knew not what they were asking for. Jesus continually told them that he was going to be put to death. Jesus continually told them that he was going to die. Throughout the Old Testament, there is prophecy after prophecy that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. The Messiah would be one who laid down his life as a ransom for many He would be one who died for the sins of his people. That he would make an atonement for his people. He is put forward as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And they're not seeing this. They're not seeing this in the scriptures of old. They're not seeing this in how Jesus is living. There's things that that just aren't making sense to them at this time. This was their expectation. This was their Desire, this is what they, they wanted. They wanted this to happen. But Christian, understand this reality. You, you must understand your life as a Christian, regardless of what culture you live in, regardless of what happens within this particular culture here. As a Christian, you are victorious, and you are victorious 
because of Christ Jesus and who he is. Your victory is grounded not in your political power. Your victory is grounded not in your material possessions. Your victory is grounded not in your financial stability. No, you are grounded because of Christ, because of who Jesus is. See, the apostles looked and they saw their victory at this time in being with Christ taking over political reigns of this day, taking over this culture at this time, overthrowing the Roman powers. That the victory was there in the suffering servant, this one who would come forward and die on behalf of his people, would take upon himself the consequences of the sins of the world and would walk in obedience, would fulfill the law in every respect so that all who believed upon him, all who trusted on the name of the Lord would be saved. If he had gone down the pathway of the expectations of the disciples, if he had gone down the pathway of the expectations of his culture at this time, of what a Messiah would do and how a Messiah would live, there would have been no hope. They would have had the world, but they would not have had the Lord. They would not have had a redemption for their sins. We must see this, dear friends. We must understand that there, there are two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of man. There is the, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is working through the hearts of men. And Christians are victorious. Christians are victorious regardless of their political power. It must be seen that way. Consider the Christians in the time of Nero and the great persecution that was there, the persecution that went forward with emperor after emperor in the Roman Empire. And Domitian was an incredible persecutor of the church. And Nero was a man, an emperor who was, who was going insane pretty much. And he was, his, his culture was falling apart. He was, he was a man who was losing his mind. The judgment of God was likely even falling upon the Roman Empire because of their sin. And one of the consequences of God judging a culture or an empire is that they are given ungodly rulers. They are given rulers at times that have no sense, that do not have a mind, that do not know their right hand from their left hand. It's a consequence of God judging a culture. And so it was with Nero at this time. And Nero, in his persecution, in his morbid persecution, went so far as to begin to blame the Christians for the problems within the culture at this time. And he did something that was so incredibly despicable that he would have these garden parties and he would, he would take Christians and he would light them on fire as lanterns at these garden parties, blaming them for the problems within the culture. Imagine that. These are, this is the royalty in Rome. These are the senators gathering around at these garden parties of Nero, the aristocrats of Rome gathering around and eating, and there's, there's, there's burning flesh all around them. And from a worldly standpoint, you could see those Christians and you could see them as, as losers. You could see them as having no power, no victory. 
You could see them as the defeated ones. But they were not. They were the victors. Nero is the one who was defeated. Nero is the one who was losing his mind. Nero is the one who was a a slave. Nero had taken away all that they owned. He had taken away their property. He had taken away their power. He had taken away their influence. He even took away their lives. And they had greater wealth and greater power than he did from an eternal perspective. This is a perspective the disciples don't have during this time. There are people that are lacking in trusting in the Lord, trusting even in the word of the Lord. They had power to even exercise this demon from this young boy at this time, but they were trusting in themselves. We see this in the other Gospels as the story is unpacked. They were trusting in themselves. They, they were not trusting in the word of God And there are people trusting in themselves that were desiring to establish an earthly kingdom at this time through the Messiah. But those who are being persecuted, dear friends, those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in Christ, are those who have the true wealth. I want you to see this. I I want you to, to believe upon this. This is an aspect of our religion. This is an aspect of Christianity that will sustain you at any place, at any time. Regardless of disappointments, regardless of celebrations, regardless of accomplishments, it will, it will, it will support you during the highs on the mountaintop and the lows in the valley and looking at life and remembering life from an eternal perspective remembering this eschatological hope that we have in Christ. Jesus, because we can be short-sighted. We, we can confess these things. We can say, you know, I, I, I believe these things. I believe that the Christians during the times of Nero were the, were the victors. But then we begin to live and exist in our own culture, and we begin to put on a different lens. We begin to have a, a different perspective. There are those that have gotten into this perspective from from what's called a a reconstructionist perspective. And and they look at a a culture and Christians living in a culture and they say, well, there is an ungodly culture. The culture is not following the laws of God and the natural consequence of that culture not following the laws of God is that it's going to break down. There's going to be a breakdown of the leadership within that culture. There's going to be a breakdown in the leadership of that country. God's going to give that culture, God's going to give that country ungodly leaders. There's going to be consequences because God is judging that culture. And we can see this. We can agree with this reality. God's going to fall in it. There's, there's going to be a breakdown within that, that culture. But the Reconstructionist perspective will then go and and take this additional step. They will say, well, so the culture is then going to break down. And so it is up to the Christians to be preparing for this time to to reconstruct what is going to break down. So there's preparation that needs to be made to to teach your children, to be good, to to have skills, to have farming, to, to learn how to trade, 
to learn how politics should be practiced, to, to, to practice and work in all of these particular areas so that when society falls, that from the ashes of that culture, the Christians who have raised up these children can go and raise up a, a Christian culture in the midst of these ashes, almost like a phoenix rising from the ashes. You see this in all kinds of different stories. And I think this, this would make a fantastic dystopian movie. This would make a, a great novel. I, I can even imagine it now. A, an EMF bomb goes off over the United States. There's no electricity. You've got that homeschool family, and they, they worked on this old Mustang. They're able to drive it around because it's not affected by the um, work of that EMF bomb that destroyed uh, all of the circuitry and these other modern vehicles. And they had learned farming, and they had learned trade, and they're able to rise up and build a culture in the midst of this disarray. Sounds like a good story. It, it sounds fan. Fantastic. You could put this on VidAngel. You could put this on Lore. People would buy this novel. So those of you that are you know, young Christians, those of you that are working and you're writing, you could create this. I think it would, it would sell. But this is fantasy. This is not what we are promised. We're not promised that's how things are going to play out in this culture. It, and such a belief cannot be what grounds you, dear friends, in walking in obedience. Your hope cannot just be that the whole culture is going to fall apart and then your children are going to rise up and then rebuild something else. That may happen. Praise God if that happens. Walk in obedience if that happens. But you must allow the word of God, history, and the world around you to inform you you must not just trust in some fantasies. There are many fantasies and ideas that you can, you can read of, that you can hear on podcasts, that you can find on YouTube. And I think this, if this is where your hope is, if this is where you're, you're trusting, if this is where your mindset is, that it's going to be a distraction from ordinary means of grace, from ordinarily trusting in the things of God, trusting in what God has given to you. And it's not going to be that which sustains you in those valleys, that which sustains you when things aren't going as you so desire. If you begin homeschooling and you just, I've got a 200-year vision, and you're 200 years into the future, you are, you're probably about 199 years too far ahead in your vision. You're just beginning this journey. You're just beginning in what you're doing. There are areas in growth where you need to, to grow in this. I learned long ago to walk in faith and to trust in the Lord. And I had, I had 10 years ahead of me planned out, and the Lord removed that with nine feet of water in our apartment very early in our marriage. We must walk in faithfulness to the Lord but we must have a religion that has us grounded, has us grounded, which can be resolved in all circumstances, in, in all situations. Hope is not in legacy. Our hope is not in our ability to rule over others. The grounding of Christian obedience 
must be in the word of God. That must be what, what drives us, which, what, which, gives, which drives us forward. That is what would sustain the apostles during this time, during the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. That is what su- would sustain the apostles as they began to spread Christianity throughout the world as the governing powers continued to persecute and persecute, as there was diaspora after diaspora, and they were moved further, and they were moved further, and they were walking in obedience where the Lord had them at this time, and the Lord was working through them. They had no political power to speak of, though the Lord was calling people in political power to obedience to Christ Jesus. We see that even in the letters of Paul. He speaks of those who are in the the house of Caesar. We see people of great power in in the first century of the Jews, of the Jewish leaders that were being called to obedience in Christ Jesus, who were believing upon Christ. You see Joseph of Arimathea, one who lent Christ his grave, one who brought a great amount of, of wealth of herbs for the preservation of the body of our Lord You see, Nicodemus, one who held great power and sway. And so you see the Lord expanding his kingdom and working through the hearts of men and calling people to himself. Because that's not normally how things go down. As much as it would be nice to imagine a scenario where things fall apart and then we rise up through the ashes because of these traits that we've taught our kids. The reality is that's not how things normally happen. Look at a country like North Korea. Consider the ways in which for the last 80 years there has been a tyranny, a a, a rule in that country, and a people that has a country that has oppressed the Christians, consider the USSR and how they behaved and the culture that is even there at this time. You don't know, you don't know that the culture that you're in, that it'll just fall and the Christians will rise up. There are times where the Lord uses the destruction of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD to spread the gospel even further, to move the gospel even further out. We must be grounded in the truth. Christ must be sufficient. We must see the greatness of what Christ has done. We must see even the losing of wealth and power in light of what we have in Christ. Seeing the the greatness and the beauty of what we have in the new Jerusalem. The disciples are coming down from this mountaintop. They had seen the glory of the Lord at that time, and they're walking down here. Their mind is on victory, is on worldly conquest. But they were not trusting in ordinary means. They were ready to go and take over the reins of power in the culture. But you see during times of ordinary means, and you see this over and over again in the life of the disciples, Back in Luke 9, 32, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. There are numerous times where, Peter, where Jesus is, is pleading with his disciples to pray. There's times where Jesus is going out to pray. You see this as a regular part of the Lord. Jesus is often going off to pray, and he's bringing his disciples here at this time as well, but they are falling asleep. 
They are ready to go and take over the culture. They're ready to go and take over the reins of power in the culture that they are in. But they can't make it to the prayer meeting. They can't, they can't gather together to pray during this time. But they're astonished at the majesty of God. They're astonished at the majesty of God at this time. But then you have the valley and the valley that Jesus speaks of here in verses 44 and 45. And he says it to him in this way. He says, let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears is how he begins this. Because they were not listening. They were not being mindful of his instruction. They had their minds on glory, they had their minds on, on conquest, they had their minds on overcoming the culture. And that wasn't the road that the Lord had for them. That wasn't the Lord, the, that wasn't the road that the Lord had for Christ. It says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. This is a biblical perspective that will sustain you in all, all aspects of life, regardless of where you are. If you can see Christ and what Christ has accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection and see that as more beautiful, see that as greater than anything that you could gain in this world, that, that is more beautiful than just having your family in order. It is more beautiful than being out and not being embarrassed. It is, it is more beautiful than having ruling power in a culture. It is more beautiful than being wealthy. It is more beautiful than having, having, having your house fixed up the way that you want it. Fill, fill in the blank of any worldly desire that you may have. But if you can see Christ and what he did... Not just in a theoretic, see it as, it as it lands on the ground in your life. See that as of greater value. There is no inconvenience that is going to cause you to stumble. When the consequences of sin in the culture around you begin to affect you and your family, you will have a grounding that is there. Paul wrote this, by the way. Philippians 4, he wrote this while he was in prison, beginning in verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking in need, I have learned in whatever situation I am, I am to be content. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing hunger and plenty, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that is one of the most abused verses in all of the scriptures. It is one of the most common verses that people will will quote and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so we can go and win this championship. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and we can go and, and rally forward politically. There's all kinds of ways that this 
passage has been abused. Paul is writing in prison. Paul is one who has been humbled by the Lord. He was a proud man. He had all that he could have wanted in the world, but he had not Christ. He was an enemy of Christ, and he has found that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. He can abound even when he's in prison. The Lord placed Paul in prison. You would have seen from a worldly perspective, he is, he is a loser. He is one who has no power. He has no freedom. But Paul is one who is singing hymns to the Lord, singing praises to the Lord. We have such a significant portion of the New Testament that was given to us. As Paul was in prison, he was working. The Lord was working in him during that time. We, we must see the world from an eschatological perspective. We must see it as so many in the Old Testament did, as we see the writer of Hebrews walk through Hebrews 11 and it is person after person who is trusting in the Lord, who is trusting in the Messiah to come. We must have a religion that grounds us, dear friends, grounds us regardless of our political circumstances. Consider someone like Daniel, one who existed and lived within a, a pagan culture, existed in that pagan culture, was enslaved in that pagan culture, placed in that pagan culture against his will. And he served. He was a blessing to that culture. The empires rose, the empires fell. Multiple empires went through. Daniel continued to be there. He was a slave. He was one who would never have a family of his own. The same is likely true with the three Hebrew young men that were there as well that were cast into the furnace and the Lord used them in that time. The Lord used them in the middle of this pagan culture to further the kingdom of God. There's an entire book of the Bible that is written by Daniel. There's an entire book of the Bible that gives instructions on how it is that Christians can live, how it is that you can live within a, a pagan culture. He continued to live as a slave, but he was a victor. Daniel wasn't striving, scheming, trying to figure out how, what to do. He had been educated. He had been educated, and his education was superior to that of the Babylonians, such, so much so that they recognized this. They grabbed him and the other Hebrew young men, and they pulled them in. And his superiority in education was because of where his education came from. It was the education in Babylon was, was lacking. He was a blessing to that culture because of his skills and abilities. And Daniel worked within that culture. He existed in two kingdoms at this time. He didn't say, you know what, I'm just going to let this kingdom fall. I don't care what happens here. I'm going to let everything just fall apart and will rise up through the ashes. He worked and he lived and he existed as a slave in this pagan culture. And he worked for the glory of God at this time. His children weren't going to take anything over because he wasn't going to have any children. And as the wheels fell off the cultures that he existed in, and another one rose back up, he continued to serve the Lord. And I want you to think of some things at these times. Because these are passages in scripture 
that I find incredibly, incredibly fascinating. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. He is one who has pride. And the Lord judges him. And he is out in the field. And he is, he is eating grass. He is acting as an animal. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses. Nebuchadnezzar praises the Lord. We see that Daniel chapter 4 beginning in verse 34. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will, according to the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble and I find that to be such an incredible passage. The emperor has been humbled. He is praising the Lord. He has come to right senses. He is able to rule this culture now in, in righteousness. I want to know more. I want to know what happened next. But we have the very next verse in Daniel 5.1. You almost say, wait, what? King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. We have him at that point going and calling for the cups that come from the temple and to drink from them. And you have the writing on the wall. I just say, what about Nebuchadnezzar? What, what about the, the, this, this leader that the Lord worked in and, and changed? I mean, that was, that was exciting. I want to know what happens next. But no, you don't know what happens next. The world continues to go on. The Lord continues to rule, and he takes the life of that emperor. And we see that in, in, in Daniel, Daniel 5. It's taken away. We see that in Daniel 5, beginning in <clears throat> verse 29. Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Daniel was placed in leadership in the kingdom. And that emperor dies that night, as Daniel had told him that he would. And what's after that? You have Darius ruling, idolatrous leader. Daniel ends up thrown into the lion's den. We have Daniel there. The Lord is working in him. The Lord is, is accomplishing his good purpose in him. And Daniel didn't just say, no, I'm not going to do anything in this pagan culture. I'm not going to further man's kingdom, the kingdom of God is here working through the hearts of men. The Lord is accomplishing his good work for his good purpose. God works as he so chooses to work. 
Daniel's plan wasn't to get taken as a slave, neither was it for these, these young men. He didn't plan to go through the abuse that he went through in his life, but it was part of God's providential plan. God was doing something greater at this time than building worldly kingdoms. God was doing something greater. He was building, he was working in the hearts of his people through the difficulties, through the stresses, through the persecutions, through the pains. He was growing them. He was sanctifying them. So what was happening with Daniel and these young men? The apostles are not there yet. That's not where they are. All are astonished at the majesty of God. We see that in verse 43. They're still on their mountain high. They're seeing themselves as as running into glory, riding into glory. And Jesus is telling them, let these words sink in. I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to men. These powers that you desire to control and to wield, they are going to take me by force. They are going to take me They're going to place me on a cross. He has said this to them multiple times. He's going to keep saying it to them. And it's going to happen. And they're going to be shocked. They're not going to be ready. They're going to be astonished. But the Lord is using even this in their lives. It took many years for the Lord to work in the lives of Daniel and the Hebrew young men for them to realize just as it did in the life of Joseph. It's just in the life of Joseph, who was, who was taken out from his family, sold into slavery by his brothers, sent into slavery in, in Egypt, enslaved there. He was a blessing to the Egyptians. Do you not realize that the Lord made Egypt the most powerful empire in the world because he placed Joseph in that empire? And Joseph interpreted the dream of Pharaoh. And what happens when people don't have food? They will give everything they have for the food. Take my land, take my gold. I don't have any food. That's what happens. Food becomes more valuable than gold when food is scarce. And God providentially blessed Pharaoh. Providentially blessed Pharaoh. That Pharaoh owned all of the land in Egypt with the exception of the land that the the priest had. And they became powerful. The most powerful military in the world was in Egypt at that time, one of the greatest empires that the world has ever known, all for the purpose of accomplishing his providential purpose. Joseph went over there to Egypt that his people would be saved, that the line of Judah would be saved, and it took the life of Joseph going through what he went through in Egypt, through the consequences of what he went through, to be able to declare what he did at the end of Genesis and to say what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And God demonstrated his glory providentially through what he accomplished there in Egypt. He worked and sanctified his people. He sanctified Joseph. He sanctified Joseph's brothers. Remember, Joseph's brothers, when they sold him into slavery, did not care about their father. They did not care about bringing his gray hair down. But then you see when Joseph says, bring me Benjamin, bring me your youngest brother, they're pleading with him, take my life, take me. You see even the work of God. You see even the the, the work of the Spirit of God in the lives of these people during that time, and God providentially 
then sending the people out, this, this gold that was accumulated by the Egyptians, they're, they're throwing it at the Israelites as they leave. Just please leave. Please, please walk out of here. Please, please, please go away. You see the greatest military in the world at that time destroyed because the Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh and he walks forward into the Red Sea doing that which is insane, doing that which makes no sense at all. The apostles aren't remembering these stories. They're not remembering how the Lord had worked in times past. They're not remembering the the scriptural stories. They're not remembering the prophecies about the Messiah, that he will die, he will lay his life down. They're hearing even these things from Jesus, and they're spiritualizing them. I mean, how could we have a Messiah that dies? We, we need to take over. We have, these, we have these prophecies that are given that we're going to reign, that we're going to rule, that there's going to be one who sits on the throne of David. How could the Messiah die? He tells them, let this sink in. They're going to physically kill him. He's not going to arise through the ranks of political power within this culture. It's not going to happen at all. The apostles are not going to rise up in the ranks of the political culture, either here within Israel in the first century or within the ranks of Roman culture. They're going to be removed from authority. Those even in Israel, Jerusalem, it's going to be removed 40 years later. Titus is going to come in. Jerusalem is going to be sacked. It's going to be destroyed. The walls are going to come down as it was prophesied. That's what they're hoping for. They're hoping for this political rise in power. That's not what's going to happen. It's the same thing the Pharisees and the the Sadducees desired as well. But they will not. And this is completely normal for Christians throughout history. That God's people exist and walk within a culture and they live within the culture. And the Lord works within them in that particular culture at that time. And here's what you see, the cultures in the world, and you can look around at the cultures in the world that have the greatest freedom, that have the greatest prosperity, have had the greatest influence from Christianity. There's no question about that. The work of God in that area, the effects of Christianity, is, is a blessing to a culture. The cultures that believe that they can snuff out the church, that they can persecute the church, they can run the church out of that culture, are those that are bringing a curse upon themselves. They're taking away the very blessing of God through the church of God. Am I saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics or that we shouldn't strive to work within the culture that we're in? Absolutely not. It's too important for us not to. It's too important for us not to be involved and not to be, not to be involved in the political realm but it's not our hope. Our hope is not grounded in taking a, a, a power or a control within a culture. Our hope is in Christ. And that which drives us, that which we're grounded in, that which we stand upon, that which we're, we're hoping in, that which is going to lead us forward during the times of not just that mountain high, when we've come to a realization about a particular truth, but that which is going to give us a strength, is going to preserve us, 
in the valleys, at the times where you don't have that same emotional exuberance, the times where you don't have that same emotional high and that drive is to remember the word of God, to remember the promises of God, to remember what God has accomplished for us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And that is what should drive us in obedience. Why educate your children in in Christianity? Why educate your children in, in, in the ways in which educate your children this general revelation? For the glory of God. Because God has given to you these souls. God has placed in your care, dear, dear parents, he's placed in your care these souls, these souls that will give an account before the Lord, these souls that will stand before the Lord and give an account for how they have lived. We are to do that for the glory of God because God has given us that opportunity. That must be which drives us must drive us in our marriage, must drive us in even involvement in our culture. It must not be even just our fantasies or desires or what we would want to happen. It must be the word of God. It must be our trusting in in what God has promised us. It must be a motivation that we have been saved by grace and through faith. The Lord has given us life. Christ is enough. Christ is is sufficient. And it is that grounding. It is that, 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 that firm foundation that you have in Christ Jesus, that firm foundation, that rock of Christ Jesus that you have that will give you strength to stand even in the midst of all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of persecutions, all kinds of disappointments, all kinds of, of pain that could be before you. Only in Christ can you have such hope. Only in Christ can you be sustained during such times. Because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. That which the mountaintop pointed to is that which Christ would accomplish. Which they saw as a valley, but the Lord was there. The Lord was accomplishing their salvation. What more must must we have, dear friends? Christ has given to us life abundantly. He he, he has shown to us who he is and what he has made. He has shared himself with us in his word. He has communicated himself with us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord has given us all that is necessary for life and for growth and godliness. May we see what he has given to us. May we see it eternally. May our motivation be grounded in who he is, in the very word that he has given to us. May that be that which drives us and strives us forward. That we would be able to speak as Paul spoke. That we can be content in all situations. We we must not be anxious. We don't have to be anxious. Christ has accomplished all that is necessary. Christ has given to us all that we need. Christ alone, we have this hope. Christ alone, we have this life. Dear friends, see Christ in the beauty of what he has accomplished. See the surety of what we have in his finished work. See the eschatological hope that we have 
in Christ Jesus and may Christ be sufficient, may Christ be enough and may what Christ has done for us be our motivation in all aspects of our existence, in all aspects of our obedience with our hope being grounded and founded in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.